I do not need Blake. I do not need any of the others. Is that a question? I do not need anybody at all. And welcome to episode 18 of Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this week we are looking at Horizon, written by Alan Pryor, so the first guest writer, if you like. Yes. We'll talk about that in a moment. Directed by Jonathan Wright Miller, who also did Shadow. This is the last of the two that he does. First broadcast on the 30th of January, 1979. The ratings for this one, 6.3 million. Now, although this is only down by... 0.1 0.1 million from last week's episode. Yep. That is enough to actually make this the lowest rated episode yes. of Blake 7 across the four seasons. Yes, I saw that. So uh, not not making any judgments or anything about <laughs> it, just making a note that, yeah, this was the lowest rated episode. It's all uphill from here. Mm. So, Richard, my episode, I'll be taking us through this one. Yep. So do you want to kick us off with your general thoughts? It's not a bad episode. I'll say, look, I enjoyed it. There are, I think, a few contrivances in the script. And look, it's a bit slow at points. The middle bit in particular dragged a bit for me. And converse enough, actually, it felt quite rushed at the end. So I think it's perhaps one that needed another draft, maybe. But it was certainly a fun enough episode to watch. I certainly remember, before I'd seen this one, I knew that in the zeitgeist of Blake 7 fandom, it wasn't well regarded. Mm. And when I first saw it, I was actually quite surprised by that. I actually got a lot out of this on the first viewing. And I've always been quite fond of it. I think there's a lot of very good stuff in here. And coming back to it for the podcast, again, there were a lot of really nice ideas, some nice scenes, some yep. good performances. There was enough here to keep me involved, and I thought, it's not a bad episode. However, I do have to agree, the whole is probably slightly less than the sum of its parts on this occasion. I said a minute ago, I need another draft. It's probably also perhaps lacking a B-plot. It's just sort of one long A-plot, and I don't know that it's really enough to fill the 50 minutes. No, I mean, there is sort of a A and a bit plot with the stuff mm. on Avon and the Liberator, but you're right, there isn't a lot there. But what, what there is, I, I do like it. But it does feel, as you said, though, like it needs one more draft of the script. Yeah, I know Chris Boucher did a bit of work on it. This one was actually supposed to be screened 8th. Now, there was a script called Death Squad by Pip and Joan Baker that fell through at quite a late stage. Mm. And we sort of talked about Series 2 being done as block production. And there was two production blocks. There was the first block of six episodes, and each director in that block does two. As we said a minute ago, this is Jonathan Wright Miller's second episode. But when Death Squad fell through, they suddenly had a gap. And I think the case was this was the only second production block episode that was sort of close to being finished. So it got shunted forward in the production schedule, which necessitated a few adjustments to the script. And you can also note as well, before this, we've had two Chris Boucher episodes. So he's obviously spent a lot of time actually writing from scratch two scripts. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we do know that there was a large amount of rewriting required on pressure points. Some Mm. whole plot points in pressure point. Next episode actually got changed by Boucher. So he was actually quite overworked at this point, and maybe this one just did slip through. As I say, it's not bad. It just feels lacking in the polish we've had, Mm. certainly from the last three episodes. A couple of general thoughts before we really get into this. One thing I noted is that we are very much now, for a couple of sort of frolics into sort of non-traditional Federation episodes with the Terra Nostra and Coza and all of that, 
we're now into a very traditional Federation episode. They're on a planet, mm. the Federation's doing stuff, they have to escape. It's, it's very straightforward. Yes. And the other thing is, as we mentioned in the introduction, we have for the first time got someone writing who isn't the showrunner, so to speak, or the script editor. No, that's right. So this is the first time someone has come in to the show, not necessarily knowing all about it, and he's just writing a fresh episode for it. Mm. So some of the characters perhaps are a little off from what we know. Yes, and we'll talk about that as we go on. Yes, and then there are obviously some concepts introduced here that we probably haven't encountered before. Yes. Yeah. So let's get into it then. So we'll start with just a discussion about the main Horizon plot thread. Mm -hmm. Now, the opening makes it really clear that at this point there has been some significant time passing and it's implied there have been if not necessarily missions certainly skirmishes or escapes or yes getting away from the federation and they are tired they are exhausted they are physically nervous wrecks yeah it's obviously a bit of time after weapon it says you know they've obviously been out running federation patrols the direction in those first couple of images that we see seem to be that Jenna and Villa have been sitting at the controls for an extended period and they're now starting to drift, they're losing concentration, yep. etc., which is why I'm guessing the freighter is almost on top of them, really. And it's Zen, actually, who finally registers with him. Yeah, and it's another of those really good Blake 7 things where they do try to give this impression that these are real people mm. and they are stuck on a ship. I mean, there is no day shift and night shift and you get to knock off at the weekend or anything <laughs> on board the Liberator. You are constantly on alert and if it's 3am on ship time when the pursuit ships are closing in well everybody's up and that's right escaping so you're back to your battle stations <laughs> <laughs> yeah so just that world building is really important as you said there's a freighter that goes by the alert is very late now what's interesting is at this point zen knows the planet that the freighter is going to based on our know, trajectory and everything is a planet codenamed horizon and a nice little reference there the only reason Zen knows that is because of the Federation ciphers and he's picked up traffic or yep. it's all sort of gone through. So there's no actual information there. And then as they approach the planet and Avon's very much, well, no, we don't know what's out there. We shouldn't go too close to it. It could be an um, experimental war zone or something. And it's also implied, and I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, I don't think I am, that the further you get from the centre of the Federation, the further you get from the recognised space lands, the less likely this is to just be the planet nice place. Yes. You know, if you're out this far, it's not just a nice colony growing barley or something, or a space retirement village. It's something that people don't want to go to. It's away. It's nasty. They do make the point that the ship is going into Zone 9, which they do say, I think, is right on the edge of one of the spiral rims. And that is reinforced later in the episode. This is clearly a long way from anywhere that really is generally habited. Yeah, it's like Space Perth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there is nothing out there. Except this planet, which they're going to. But then they get attacked by the video effect. Yeah, which, particularly the stuff you see inside the ship, look, for a simple video effect, it's quite effective. Yeah, it is one of those examples of how much money do you spend on something that's there for 10 seconds. Mm. The, the one on the outside is very straightforward. And yeah, the inside isn't bad. Mm. You get Aurak gently reassuring us you know, not to panic. It does remind me a little bit of that bit in Hitchhikers where the... Uh, the narrator comes over when the uh, Heart of Gold's under attack and says, It is, of course, more or less at this point that one of our heroes sustains a slight bruise to the upper arm. This should be emphasised because, as has already been revealed, they escape otherwise completely unharmed and the deadly nuclear missiles do not eventually hit the ship. Our hero's safety is absolutely assured. It was a little bit like that. Villa afterwards complains about getting the bends. 
Yeah, I wondered about that. Now, is that him exaggerating or what? Well, his reaction to the stress is, is said that he's getting stomach cramps and stuff. So, look, whether, yeah, it's just his sort of typical overreaction. Oh, I'm dying, I'm dying. <laughs> I don't know, because I don't really see how you would get yes, anything even remotely resembling the bends from that. But No, but we do get the first mention in the series of adrenaline and soma. Yes. Now, here, it's very clearly said to be a medicine. Stabilise the shot, now keep still. What was that? One third adrenaline, two thirds soma. Soma, eh? I think I'll bottle it and make myself a fortune. He'll be sleepy now for about half an hour. That will be nice. Yes, and it seems to be almost something that Callie has put together herself. The shot that she gives Villa, she says, oh, it's one part adrenaline and two parts Soma. Yes, and it is a shot. Mm. It's a space shot, but yes. it is a shot. And this, again, is an example, though, of what we were talking about with it feeling like the episode needs another draft. Mm. Because in one part of that conversation, she implies very heavily that this is the first time she's used it. Villa's never heard of it. And then about two minutes later, they say they've been living off the stuff for weeks. Yeah. Well, the villas just never bothered to ask what it was. You know, it makes me feel good, so I don't really <laughs> care. But... <laughs> yeah, I, that's, a, that's a generous interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more likely a failing of the script editor, sorry. <laughs> but what's interesting as well then, because I've just attacked the script editing, but again, I'm going to praise it now. What does work well is thematically they have now built up to this thing where they've said, right, we're tired, we're stressed, we need a rest, etc., etc. So when Blake wants to explore the planet, he uses that as an excuse. Mm. Well, we've been saying we need to stop and have a rest somewhere. Maybe this is where we can have the rest. And if we don't go down and look, well, we could be missing a chance. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, as we've said, this growing, really manipulative, really cynical mm. Blake in that he's actually willing to put the crew at risk. You know, when they're really at a low point here and not functioning at all well, he's happy to put them at a risk because he wants to go down. Yes, he is curious about this. Really the only one who... Well, it depends, because Jenna is initially quite pissy when he says he wants to go to Horizon, and, you know, this is the course he wants her to take, and it's like, oh, well, if we must. You know, and Avon, obviously, again, because Avon is now the antagonistic one, calls him out on it that we're going because of your curiosity. Right. Really? And it also leads to Blake talking about needing a base, which I think this is one of those things that really comes from the outside writer being in. Mm. Terra Nation and Chris Boucher have really shown no interest in that. They're very happy with the crew living on board the Liberator. But Alan Pryor's sort of got this idea of a base, and it's something that comes up in a few other scripts, particularly his as well. So it is introduced here as well, this idea that they'll have a base. Now, exactly what Blake would do with a base, I'm not sure. Yes, and particularly one so far out, really. No, exactly, because as a terrorist, the worst thing you can be is a sitting target. Exactly. I guess you can sort of explain it perhaps as, you know, Blake is now getting frustrated with their lack of progress and that they're constantly on the run, and that this looks like a place that the Federation clearly only come to once a year, so... The other 11 months of the year, they could probably hide there in perfect safety. Yes, until they're followed back there. Yes. <laughs> in which case, yeah. And yet it's worth actually exploring that point because you're right, Blake is frustrated, but he's frustrated because he's doing what terrorists do. Mm. You, you stay away from the mainstream. You come in just to hit, run... Yes. Get out. I guess is it more a case that really they maybe haven't been like, say, Avalon, who've started resistance groups on, what is it, 30 Worlds or whatever mm. it was she was meant to have done. They don't have, 
any really great success at this point. There's not a rebellion with Blake at the head of it. And indeed, if you look at the last few weeks, I mean, we've had Redemption, which was just reactive to the, what the system was mm. doing. He had his plan to recruit the Terra Nostra, that fell down. Mm. He had his plan to go and hit the weapons manufacturing depot or yep. whatever it was, and that fell down, and he didn't even get any pack out of it either. No. This is a series where the good guys don't win every week. Mm. And in this case, he's probably had a series of... Of defeats, setbacks, or setbacks yeah. anyway. Basically, since he got Auric, I mean, that was his last big victory, and mm. that's a nice tool. But you're right; nobody's now freer because Blake no, has Auric, and there's no army behind him or anything. Yeah. So perhaps that's where it's coming from. At this point, Blake does go down. There's some other stuff that goes on. We'll talk about that in another thread, I think. Yeah, the stuff of the Liberty. Yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that in another thread because I want to keep going with what Blake does, which is basically go down and get captured. <laughs> and again, it's shown that he's not alert. He's not with it, and a decent security system picks him up really quickly. Yes. We now, of course, meet the people on Horizon, and it's very clear from the way this is signalled what sort of story this is going to be. We introduced a row. He's not quite wearing a Nehru collar, but it's a pretty close version. You know, it's a space Nehru collar, maybe. That's right. He's exotic looking. He's not your typical sort of London-based Caucasian actor. No. He's very young, and he's playing it very insecure. The Commissar says he was very malleable and makes the point later in the episode that Roe's father obviously was clearly a lot stronger or more resistant than Roe himself was. Yes, and even here it's worth noting that the Federation officials uh, seem to be very different to what we've seen before. They're not part of Space Command or the Space Fleet. They're not military, they're not in uniform. They are in part of this diplomatic service. They're another part of the Federation. Mm. And I think that's... Well, let's say it now. This is the path this episode is taking us down. Although it's a very traditional Federation episode, it is showing a different way the Federation colonises. And obviously, look, it's a bit of a pot shop at the colonial past or whatever in Britain. Yeah, and we'll definitely be talking about that as the episode goes on as well. Because, I mean, look, that's exactly what it is. It's it's looking at the way that Britain colonised and how that could be transplanted to the Federation. And indeed, I mean, the, the whole thing is hung with a very large lampshade where Roe has the line... I dislike the word colony. <laughs> and that really just sort of sums this whole thing up. He doesn't want to believe that his planet's been colonised, but here he is basically taking orders from the Federation officials. And I suppose exploring that for a minute, look, he's obviously been taken from Horizon to, you know, the Federation training facility. He's been taught the Federation way, but at the same time he gets to see the benefits of being part of the Federation. He gets to see their technology, their size, their power, their resources. And this is to sell him the whole idea that, no, we're, we're a benevolent power. We want what's best for you. And indeed, I've written a note here as I was watching the episode the first time. I'll read this out word for word. Roe is at pains to the point of clunky dialogue to stress that he's his own man. <laughs> and it is. It is very, very clunkily done and stressed, no, no, I'm my own man. And the, the commissar has lots of really unsubtle and obvious... With your permission, Ro, and yes, would of you course. like to do this, Ro? It is a great pains to set up that he is conflicted and he obviously has questions in the back of his mind. He's sort of starting to push back. You would probably say, look, Blake and the crew arriving is the catalyst for him to sort of suddenly decide, well, hang on, this isn't really what I want at all and this isn't what's best for my people. And Blake, I think, picks up on that quite quickly because when he's strapped to the table... Blake immediately just starts openly challenging him about, you know, are you a Federation puppet? Does this man rule you? Are you a colony? Challenges Rose's behaviour, his acceptance of having the Federation on the world, putting his people to work in the dangerous mines, etc. And this is good and important because on the one hand we've seen Blake in this episode be very cynical and manipulative and putting his crew at risk. It's good to balance that then with this 
version of Blake where he is the natural freedom fighter. He mm. sees the oppression. He fights for the oppressed. And so our hero is still a hero in this series, even if he's getting some uh, darker shades. Roe is obviously receptive to this because, again, as he is maybe starting to question, you know, look, Blake probing him does start to awaken him, if you like. And I do need to note as well that in these scenes, particularly the early ones with the commissar and his assistant, there is a large amount of, as you well know, <laughs> conversations. <laughs> yes, the good as old they expo- yep. Yes, as they explain the setup to each other. <laughs> the... Other members of the crew go down, they get captured with the darts, which is kind of cool. It's something a bit different we haven't seen. What's interesting, though, is that as the plot moves along and they discover who Blake is and and all the Mm. rest of that, they they talk about a resisting in every 100,000, which I don't think anyone's done the maths on that. No, I did wonder whether that's more BS from the Commissar, really, just to keep Roe moving in the right direction. Resistance is an aberration. The Federation is there for the benefit of humanity. It is very 1970s, Mm. and it is very that sort of genetic defects are thrown up and all the rest of it. It's an odd line, and it doesn't really sit with anything else we see in the series. Whilst we're talking about Roe, as the plot moves on, we do get this backstory with his friend Pora, yes, who Blake just happened to be on the London with and just happened to get all the backstory with and happens to conveniently remember sort of halfway through the episode, <laughs> oh, that's right, I remember someone called Roe. You had a mate called Pora on the ship. I knew Pora. Oh, yeah. what a guy. It's probably the weakest aspect of this script. It does come out of nowhere. One thing with Pora, of course, is you do have to think, if he was on the London with Blake, he quite probably died as part of Blake's rebellion. Yes. Now, whether he's one of the ones shot when they're trying to find the armory or he's one of the ones that's just executed by Raker. Yes. And the thing is, you then have the line where Rose says, well, he must have done something wrong. It wasn't my fault. And you sort of think, well, Blake, yeah, it was mine. (laughs) (laughs) I got all the prisoners riled up and they tried to take over the ship and he got killed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, look, that is just extraordinarily coincidental. It is the weakest part of the episode. Interestingly, though, in that dialogue, we do get the original name of the planet, which is yeah. Salmarina, I think. Yes, I think so. And that does, again, go to this idea of colonisation, where the British or whoever would come in and rename countries and rename yes. cities. Yes, so I suppose you have, like, all the Indian cities were all renamed. Yeah, Bombay, for example. Yes. The next thing from here is, of course, that the crew, as they are captured, obviously, are taken to the mines. And Gan needs two darts. Yes. Which, just as an aside... Clearly, he, he doesn't need two darts. Clearly, he needs, like, one and a little bit darts because he's not superhuman. No, he gets shot and he sort of starts towards them and then they hit him with the second one and he just goes straight down. Yep, and he's out for the rest of the episode. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then we get all the stuff about the mines. Now, in the mines, we meet Rose, betrothed or whatever, Selma, who has been sent to the mines because she wouldn't tow the Federation line. Yeah, and it's really interesting the way that she's introduced... For an episode where I've just criticised it as having very exposition-heavy dialogue, it's done really well here introducing her. And again, this is this is that conflict with the scripts. There's good and bad stuff in it. Mm. Selma isn't introduced with large amounts of exposition. We see the food come in. We see all the miners in the sort of the tatty clothes yes, and the covered the, in dirt. The, and, the primitives. Yes, they go and latch for the food, but then she comes along in something that is clearly dirty and worn, but clearly a higher level of garment. Yes. All of the working class, or the working caste, if you like, 
move aside for her. Mm. She takes what she wants and then they come back. So, and then they just descend on the bowl again. Yeah, yeah, so she is shown to have this status. And we also see, therefore, that this is a very caste-heavy society, which I guess is how Indian society was portrayed, not always accurately, in British literature. Well, almost the first line of dialogue she has is, I'm not one of these people, which sets up that idea that, yes, clearly she is from a higher caste, as indeed, obviously, is Roe, and he is even further separated, perhaps, from the people because he's been off-world and he's been through the Federation education system, etc. One other note I did have, you notice that everybody playing the primitives, they've gone and hired Asiatic actors mm. um, for both the speaking parts and obviously just the mine labourers, which I guess is maybe a bit of a shorthand, if you like, to say that these are a, a native society. Yeah, I don't know whether it's done in inverted commas, benevolently, because they're trying to do an anti-colonialist polemic, mm. and so they need to show what people identify as being colonials, or yep. whether it's a little bit problematic, because they've said we need to show uh, the noble savage natives, in inverted commas, well, that's the and thing. they've gone for actors of ethnic background. Well, that's the thing, and, and it's obviously a directorial decision. And I guess it does raise the question, is Horizon, I mean, are they actually some sort of lost human colony, or are they something different? I've never taken them as being human. Right. I've always taken them as being their own society, their own evolution, their own timeline. Mm. And that's why they're, they're so far back from where the Federation right. is. Right. But, but you're right, you could interpret it that way. Well, I'm just wondering, is there a thing that we'll say it? Look, we know from later in the season, it's definitively dated the first interstellar travellers left Earth about 700 years before Black Seven is set. Yes. That's not a major spoiler, I don't think. <laughs> Look, from other dialogue, they use generation ships and sleeper ships and that sort of stuff. So I did wonder whether the idea is meant to be that these are a group that drifted way out into the spiral rim and this is the culture that they wound up with after 400 years of isolation before the Federation found them again. Yeah, maybe. Look, I must admit until you mentioned it, I hadn't read it that way. Right. But yes, you could read it that way. The other point I want to make about Selma is, although she does end up being one of the heroic characters in that she's the one that pushes the Federation away, she pushes Roe to push the Federation away. Mm. Uh, she's not entirely sympathetic because she's very willing to embrace her aristocratic role. Yes. And she's not someone like Blake who wants to sacrifice herself to liberate her people. She wants her people to be free, but she still wants her food first. Yes. Just on the caste system, we don't really see it in the episode, but there clearly must be a re-educated or federationalised upper caste that we don't really see that are perhaps junior administrators or something and that happened in a lot of colonial societies we don't really see the other side of it what the federation really brought to horizon yes we know rose been educated but is it a case that you know they now have i don't know better health care or better food production techniques or and that, that uh, middle class caste is now working in the spaceship licensing center and that's the thing so roe is sort of in his head is trading that off, okay, well, look, some of the primitives die in the mines, but look at all these great things we got. Yes, sort of their version of the, what's the Federation ever done for us? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What have the Romans ever done for us? That just seemed to be a bit of a gap in the episode for me, really. Yes, you could definitely explore that and go a lot further down that mm. path, and the episode would benefit if it did. Blake, through all this, again, is shown to bring order to the situation. He's the one that actually becomes a little bit socialist and starts rationing and allocating oh. <laughs> portions of food to everybody. And yes. it's, it's interesting that they just listen to him. Yeah, you can make that point as the sort of white overlord. They all stop because he tells them to. Yes, if you were looking at this with an unkind eye, that would be a very valid reading of it. Yeah. 
But I guess the story more wants to make the point that Roe clearly sees this as Blake, who is allegedly a resistor, is actually not the sort of dangerous, disruptive force that the Commissar says he is. I think a kind of reading of it is, and I think this is what Pryor intends, is that Blake is seen to be bringing fairness to society. Mm. And that is something that is lacking under the Federation, where it's every man for himself, whereas this ensures that everybody is fed and everybody's looked after. Yes. Yes, the coding is unfortunate, but I think that's the intent. I want to mention, though, that I do like the tech here. In a rare example in Blake 7 so far, we actually get cool space-age cameras that don't look like great big television cameras. No, they are really quite good. Yeah, really, really well done for a very simple prop. Which brings us to sort of the end of the row plot. Now, again, I'll just read a line here that I wrote verbatim. Commissar really pushing his luck here and playing it very badly. By which I don't mean the actor's playing it badly, I mean the Commissar is actually playing it mm. very badly. And that moment when he's like, oh, gee, just as well I didn't have to eliminate you, Ro. Yes. <laughs> well, you sort of sit there and go, gee, dude, you've really misjudged your target here. You're right. I've been foolish. I belong to the Federation. I'm glad you're coming round to the truth, Ro. It would have hurt me to eliminate you. You were thinking of that? Oh, yes. But we are... Brothers. So, for the good of the Federation. The Federation. We should be getting back. Of course. He gives the assistant commissar the nod, okay, this is your thing to go and inform the Federation that we're going to eliminate Roe. Selma and the torture device, really, that's the final test. Yeah. Yeah, that's not very astute at all. No, the commissar really does bring forward his downfall. And, of course, Roe then does decide he will rebel. He reverts to his native garb. He takes out the commissar. Yes, it was the death serum. You will die. It's the death serum. Yeah, now one note I had there is they make a couple of points that everybody has fled and then they say later that the last of the guards are dying. Now, we don't actually see an any uprising of, of any no. sort. I am assuming it obviously is perhaps when Avon arrives in the mine and shoots all the guards and the Liberator crew get their guns and everything back that the, I don't know, that the people in the mine take this as their signal to rise up. But the moment where clearly the Commissar is about to... Well, he is coming clearly to give Roe the final test and kill him if he doesn't toe the line. It's a bit more like where where there was a change of emperor in Rome where suddenly everybody would just disappear very quickly so the Elimination Squad could come in and do their work. That's actually exactly where I was going to go and I'm thinking of that scene in I, Claudius. Yes, well, that's what I was thinking of too. Yeah, where where the emperor informs the Senate that Sejanus is now going to be uh, arrested and you sort of watch all the senators that were on his side just quickly, you know, discreetly flee before before the guards come, yeah. And that moment where Caligula is killed, you know, suddenly there's a very suspicious absence of guards or anything anywhere around him. Yes, and yes, so you do sort of wonder, are they fleeing because they think the Federation's coming to slaughter them all? Mm. Or are they fleeing because they were collaborators Yes, and they don't want to be caught up in the rebellion? No, I, I don't know. It's not really very clear, which is why I sort of said about the end of the episode being a bit rushed. It is a little bit. And there are some other points there, but I'm going to save them for our new regular segment. So now I want to talk a little bit about what's happening on the Liberator in the Avon plot. (laughs) As we said earlier, not quite a B plot, an A and a half plot. Yes. Now, before Blake goes down to Horizon, 
he makes a point of taking Jenna with him. Mm. Now, Jenna calls him out on that in the teleport bay and says, look, why me? And Blake overtly says to her, Avon might run and he won't run without you as a pilot. Why are you taking me with you? I trust you to back me. Thanks. But there's more to it than that. You are very deliberate. Covering the angles? How do you mean? Avon might run. But he probably won't without a first-class pilot. He um, plays the percentages. Unlike you. Avon walks in and hears that entire conversation. And he plays it very cool. I'm ready if you are. Just the way he doesn't even acknowledge it. But Blake and Jenna see him. They know he's been standing there for a moment. They know they've been overheard. Yep. It's really, really well played. It is. That is a very nice little scene. (laughs) As the various members of the crew start to get into trouble, we start to get some very cool Avon lines here. I like that one where Kelly says that she feels there could be trouble. And he says, We have all the resources of Zen, Orak and the Liberator, and you feel that they are in trouble. You do not feel it. You reason it. They have not called in, therefore they must be in trouble. You don't have to be telepathic to know that. (laughs) It very much is setting him up as sort of the cold, logical and calculating one. He plays the percentages. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which of course, leads to one of Avon's most famous lines, probably in the series, where Ganny's sort of entreating them all to go down and help their friends, and he says, Villa can go, why? Well, you're expendable and you're not. No. I'll go. Gan will go. Villa will go with me, won't you, Villa? Will I? Well, it'd be stupid to go on my own. You wouldn't want to send Callie in your place, would you? Probably not. What about you? What about me? Why don't you go? You are expendable. And you're not? No, I'm not. I am not expendable. I'm not stupid. And I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) Which I believe you used to be able to get on T-shirts. Yes, I've seen some fan-made T-shirts and badges with that over the years. Interestingly, before Callie goes down, Avon does openly try and convince her to run away with him. It's not really a plea. It's sort of an Avon version of a plea, which is, look, you know this is futile and stupid, and a sensible person realises that they're probably dead or at least been captured or whatever. But when she insists that, no, she's going to go down there and damn the consequences, he's, well, look, you had your chance. Yeah, and interestingly enough, I read it as well as Kelly playing the percentages that Avon wouldn't run out on her. Yes. And Avon clearly hesitates for a moment, but then he's, no, you made your choice. Very much so. And then there was one. It probably leads into the broader point when Avon is alone on the ship. And of course, the immediate thing is, I think it's time we left. Yes. When he's sitting there going through the options with Orac and whatever, I got the very real impression he's trying to talk himself into it, really. Will his conscience allow him to do this? Because he sort of delays, delays, delays. And then you can make a point that the Federation of Flotilla, which is, what, two hours away or something at that point, gives him a convenient excuse that he has to go down and save the day. What is also interesting is that Avon very much has made his priority staying alive. Mm. He's not interested so much now in wealth. He's certainly not interested in power. No. He just wants to not die. Very much so. Even if he did run, an existence probably just on the Liberator, just drifting through space for the next 40 or 50 years, I I can't see that would be any sort of existence, really. (laughs) No. And, again, ways that you can improve this script and this story would be if Avon's 
reasoning eventually became, look, my priority is staying alive. Mm. The reality is I actually have more chance of doing that if there are other people around Yeah, me. if I'm part of a group. Yeah. So, and that would have been a nice little moment of everyone acknowledging that, look, he actually does need the others. Yes. Even if he doesn't like Blake putting him in danger every week <laughs> for 50 minutes. Indeed. So Avon decides to go down to Horizon. This is actually one of the coolest parts of the episode by it far, is. where he just takes out the security systems and launches the one-man rescue. Paul Darrow, I think, is having a lot of fun doing that too. Oh, yes. But it is very cool. He's worked out exactly what's going on. He's got his little device thing to find the cameras and take them out. Which I actually think is Kelly's Geiger counter from ORAC, I think. I think it is, but... yes. <laughs> but, yeah, that is really well done. And, yes, he then just goes on, wastes about five guards. Yes, and then uh, almost shoots Blake. Yes. As, as Blake comes around the corner, he lets off a shot that just misses him. <laughs> and the look Blake gives him just the mist. <laughs> it's really well done. That brings us to the actual conclusion on board the Liberator as they try to make their escape. Now, it's a little bit ropey here. As you said, Flotilla 13 was two hours away, and then Blake is clearly trying to get them to go through the magnetic barrier and be destroyed. Yes. Avon, again, is allowed to clue on to what's happening. Yes, and it's really, it's just a single line of dialogue. Yes, what if they're not protected? Yes. But they aren't, and they all Mm. blow up, and then we get a little tedious Scooby-Doo ending where they make the jokes you know, it beats work it's, oh please I did actually think that was funny Villa doesn't really care about being captured it's actually more the fact they're going to make him work in the mines <laughs> that's the real problem yeah look that's that's true that's true but yeah that is kind of a lame joke at the end just a couple of general character points I wanted to mention and Richard you might have some as well I do like seeing these characters slightly different Jenna here is particularly human. She's very grumpy. She's mm. very snappy. And I like that. Yeah, she really doesn't want to be a part of this at all initially. On the other hand, with Villa, we have here what I think is the first example of dumbed down Villa. Yes. Which is where a writer who is a national voucher comes in and latches on to the idea that Villa is a coward or he's stupid or he doesn't mind a drink and actually just makes him... A clown, yes, basically. Yes. He's the comedy relief. Yeah, and that is not the villa that we're used to, and that's not how villa is played in better episodes going forward. No, indeed. But the start here of that stupid villa trope is very evident. It is, and it's, it's kind of sad, particularly because we've said consistently, really up to this point, how good Michael Keating's performance is in most, even what are quite ordinary scripts. He manages to elevate villa above those. Absolutely. Now, Richard, Kelly... There's a scene there where she plays up to Rose's idea of her being a mystic. Uh, a mystic. Yeah. Did you take that as her suddenly being able to read minds or her knowing stuff? Um, or? You could say if she is reading the Commissar's mind, maybe that's just Alan Pryor's unfamiliarity with the character. Yes, he's read a character sheet that says Kelly's telepathic. Before she goes down, she's got prisoner and execution records or something. I took it more that she's actually got the details of Rose's father from that and immediately, again, just sort of goes on the attack to push him. So she's found, you know, file Operation Horizon Mm. where it says, we arrived, we took out the chief, we took his 15-year-old son and educated him. Yes, that's right. We killed the chief because he wouldn't do what we wanted and we're now moulding his son to be compliant or whatever. Okay. And then she sells the idea by the last line of dialogue she has is obviously just telepathically straight at row the commissar does actually say afterwards oh well she obviously had access to the records at some point 
Now, whether that's him fudging that she has read his mind, mm. I'm not sure. But if she is actually just totally manipulating Rowe, that is actually really quite a cool little scene then, if, on that reading. It is, and it's a very good use of Kelly. Mm. Richard, any other general points before we go into our regular segments? One note I did have, and it's a directorial choice, the crew now don't have any surface gear or anything anymore, really. They teleport down in just whatever they're wearing on the ship. Now, for some of them, it's obviously probably not that bad, you know. Blake's back wearing his Batwing costume again. Avon's in something fairly utilitarian. Yes, but probably the most ridiculous version of that really is Callie, who is in what essentially looks like some sort of puff-shoulder evening gown type (laughs) thing. And, And she's wandering around in the jungle. We will see other instances of that in the series, but that is really, particularly here, because they're overtly in heavy vegetation. It just feels like that's a really poor and clumsy choice. Yeah, no, I have to agree with that. Still, on to our regular segment. Yes. So, as always, our first regular segment is the guest cast. Mm. Now, let's start with probably one of the bigger casting coups for this period of Black Seven, mm-hmm. which is William Squire as the Commissar. Yes, he's really good. He's really, really good in this. He underplays it really, really well. And he would have been a very big name at this point. Yes, he would have been a good get for them. Now, he has credits going back to 1951. Mm-hmm. I'm obliged to mention that he was in Doctor Who, the Armageddon Factor, playing The Shadow. Yes, where he's sort of under a black stocking, really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, with an electrified voice, yeah. Yeah, sadly. He's probably best known, I think, certainly now, he was the final hunter in the colour seasons of Callan. Yes, he did 19 episodes of that. Yeah, and I have to say, he is awesome in that. Yes, now that is by far what he's best known for. He was in the 1958 adaption of Pride and Prejudice. He did a huge amount of the TV Shakespeare's Mm. in the 50s and 60s, a huge amount of them. The 1969 Canterbury Tales, which was quite a big deal at the time. He was the voice of Gandalf in the infamous 1978 Lord of the Rings. Oh, the Ralph Bakshi, the animated one, yeah. With Mark Hamill. Yes, and I'm contractually obliged to mention that he was in an episode of Rumpole the Bailey <laughs> for about 30 seconds. He did a lot of things like, he did a number of the sort of plays of the day and plays of the week. A lot yes. of those, a lot of stage work. He was actually in the Richard Green Adventures of Robin Hood as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, back in the mid-50s. But So our next guest is Darian Angardi, who plays Roe. Yeah, now he went to the Haberdashers Boys School, which is Paul Darrow's. Alma Mater. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a public school in England. His parents moved in quite high circles. They were a painter and novelist, Patricia Angardi, and writer Ayana Diva Angardi. They founded the Asian Music Circle and other people who introduced George Harrison to Ravi Shankar. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Well, he has a few credits. Mm. Had a reasonable career, but not a huge number of starring roles. He plays Plautius in an episode of I, Claudius, Mm -hmm. which, although it's a small role, it's a very memorable one. Yep. He was Juno in Warrior Queen. He was actually in Eagle of the Ninth as well. Oh, okay. Yes. He was in The Curse of King Tut's Tomb. Oh, yes, with Tom Baker, yes. Yes, and he was Jamal in Muck and Brass. Yeah, and sadly, he actually sadly took his own life in the early 80s. That's very sad. We move on to Suad Fares, who played Selma, mm. also in I, Claudius, in a very small role. She actually has had a very long career. Blake Seven was, I think, one of her early roles. Yes. And she actually, quite recently, she's in a few episodes of uh, one of the recent seasons of Game of Thrones. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. For Doctor Who fans, she wasn't in Doctor Who, but she plays the old version of Rani in a Sarah Jane adventure. She was in the spin-offs, that's just as good. <laughs> <laughs> She turns up in Inspector Morse. Yep. She does 15 episodes of Family Affairs, which was quite popular at the time. Oh. And our final guest cast is Brian Miller, yes. the assistant commissar. Yes, who I guess 
maybe sadly is probably best known certainly to genre fans perhaps as Mr. Elizabeth Sladen. Yes, and we've actually met him. Yes, we have. He was a very nice bloke, too. He, he was, he was. Didn't ask him about this, I don't think, did we? No. The entire family came out for a convention here in the mid-90s. They did, yes, so we met up in Sydney. Yes, indeed. Speaking of, he actually has got quite a lot of Doctor Who and Doctor Who related credits. He was Dugdale in Snake Dance. <laughs> he is one of the Dalek voices in Resurrection and Remembrance yes. of the Daleks. Although not Revelation, apparently. All right, okay. That's interesting. He is in the new series of Doctor Who in the episode Deep Breath, but yes. you know, we'll forgive him. Oh, that, that was quite an interesting little scene. He was the tramp Peter Capaldi, but it's just after he's regenerated. Uh, it was a good scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I want you to review... Let, let, let's just leave that one there. That's right. Uh, he was in the spin-off Sarah Jane Adventures. Yes. And he was also in the spin-off spin-off Wizards vs. Aliens. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, but look, he did have, do some other stuff as well. He did six episodes of Angels, seven episodes of Compact, Strike at Rich for ten episodes. There's just a lot of stuff. He was a very successful actor and he was regularly in work yes he was but I mean, rarely in starring role i do remember seeing him in the bill and at least a couple of episodes yes. of that he was in actually what was the final transmitted episode of the professionals oh, okay. uh, no stone which was the last one shown again i rewatched sherlock holmes not all that long ago he was in one of those okay the blue carbuncle yeah he's in a lot of yeah. stuff he's actually also in terry gilliam's brazil oh wow yeah that's pretty cool yeah so we'll move on to our next segment, which is the Liberator Database. A few things here to help build up the Blake 7 universe. Mm. We get our first mention of hyperspace fleets that can travel to new galaxies. Yeah, yes, Monopasium 239 is uh, the new wonder fuel by which that can be achieved. Yes, and this is a very good example, just to uh, not spoil, but alert listeners who are doing the journey that this is a point that will come back. Yes. It is, it is a very nice example of a seed being sown early. Yes, kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and just to reiterate a couple of points here, we again have Zen knowing stuff because of the ciphers that they've broken. Yes, that's true. There's clearly nothing in, in the systems databases about Horizon. Yes, and as I mentioned earlier, our first mention of Adrenaline and Soma, which will become a regular staple of the series. Yes, plus I guess we do get the idea that uh, the vastness of Federation space, etc., and that Federation are operating even in areas where you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be, which I guess again probably ties into that colonial idea that the sun never set on the British Empire and that you're representatives of Britain in these far-flung corners of the world. That... Yeah, and, and it also reinforces this idea that the Federation isn't a nice, neat, contiguous no. mass. It, it has gone off to explore different places, and mm. there's some places where it's gone further than others. And So yeah, yeah, I do like that world-building there. We move on to, look, it was the 1970s, and I haven't got anything here that's actually 1970-specific, except to say that a lot of the stuff we've been talking about was very much in the zeitgeist at the time. Colonialism, we're now about sort of 15 years, 20 years past the decolonialisation of Africa. Yep. We are a long way past the independence and partition of India. Yes, indeed. But that is still something that is very much in... In the consciousness. In the consciousness, in popular culture. One of the very first episodes of Rumpole, so I'll really bring it up again, mm -hmm. but one of the very first episodes of Rumpole does have a, a pupil of Indian background coming out from India to study under Rumpole and talking about how it was better when the British ran things and him being part of the educated class that the British yep. set up. And you know that's a very middle-class mm. view of, of India and it's not necessarily accurate. You also get a lot of references in other things. So, you know, that is very much the background of the episode. But also, particularly, there's a lot of stuff in literature about that idea of the British taking young members of the higher castes away to be educated in public schools 
get a degree at Oxford or Cambridge. Yes. And then go back and teach them, you know, the Westminster system and justice and the and, English way. Yes, and, and obviously bring them into the fold, so to speak. Yeah, and a couple of examples I thought of from television around this time, the adaption of like Claudius, you have that bit where Herod is taken away to, you know, be educated in mm. Rome and becomes Claudius's friend. So mm. Herod will go back to Judea and be a uh, pro-Roman yep. ruler. Yep. Doesn't quite work out that way, but yep. but they tried. And even in the adaption, very close to this time as well, of To Serve Them All My Days, you get the Cassava boys in there, who are, again, oh, yeah. are young boys who've been brought out to be taught at a British public school in the mm. 1920s okay. and, and learn about how to be British and go back and rule India. Yes, indeed. So, so there actually is a lot of examples of this sort of story being told in the 1970s. Yes, which brings us probably to our slightly lighter segments, the first of which is Gan Watch. Gan has highs and lows in this episode. This probably isn't a particularly strong Gan episode. I mean, he does spend quite a bit of it tied to a pole in the mine, so... Unconscious, yes, which is a shame because some of his scenes are really good. After Blake and Jenner have gone down, mm. Gan is the one who says, we have to go and sort them out. He says, Kelly, no, you don't go down. Villa, I will make you yes, go down. Yes, that's actually very good. He shames Villa, basically, into coming with him. Yes. When he realises clearly he can't influence Avon. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a really good Gan scene. But on the other hand, we have the scene where Oraki is teaching him. Now, I'm not sure what he's teaching him, but the effect is to make it seem like Gan's kind of stupid. Not just, you know, less educated than the rest of the crew, but he's actually just thick, which yeah. does to mean the character. Now, I'm not sure what it was that Oracle was giving him a lesson in. Well, actually, we haven't mentioned uh, Making Blake Seven <laughs> this, uh, this episode thus far, so look, we'll do it now. There is actually a note on there, apparently Alan Pryor's script specified that Orak is giving Gan a lesson in astro-navigation. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, that didn't make it into the final episode. Yeah. But... And so one of those examples, and then are there aren't many of them, really, of where the Blake 7 budget comes in. Because realistically, yeah. you'd have had some sort of room, you know, a desk, a computer. Yeah, a PowerPoint presentation or something. Or yeah. something, some sort of tutorial room where they could be done, but they're not going to build a whole set just for 30 seconds. No. So he's just having a lesson in the teleport room because... Why not? Why the hell not? Yeah. yeah. Our next segment is What Happened Next? Yes, this is the second time we're doing our new segment, What Happened Next? And indeed, this is one of the episodes that inspired this segment. Yes, indeed. Which is designed to actually have a look at what actually happens in the scenario after Blake and Liberator cheerfully fly off into the sunset. Yes, because they are very much left. I am very much of the view that Roe and his people are basically just cooked at this point. They even make the point in the dialogue at the end of the episode, that eventually the Federation are going to send more troops. Yes, and the way that Blake plays it, he seems to know that these people are not getting off lightly because it's been strongly established the Federation needs Monopasium 239. Mm. They can only get Monopasium 239 from Horizon. And one other planet. Yeah. yeah, so if they want it and they can't get it by enslaving the natives, well, they'll just get rid of the natives. Indeed. And let's face it, Horizon is far enough away from anywhere else that they can do that in complete secrecy. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way that the uh, educated middle class of the Federation would know or care. No. I would say that he's definitely less economical to fly in a whole lot of miners. Yep. They probably have good union deals and everything. So, you know, and, and heavy equipment and stuff. Yeah, yeah, all that. So that would be less economical. But if you can't get it through slave labour... Well, that's the thing. I guess you've solved your labour relations problem, <laughs> haven't you? So. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, the episode does... Not say it, but Blake plays it that way. I think so. These people are They're basically screwed. Yes, screwed, yeah. Yep. Which brings us finally to what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Yes. Funnily enough, for an episode where Avon has a lot to do, there aren't really all that many big, memorable Avon lines in this one. No, that's true. I'm very fond of uh, his response to Blake 
Oh, you are curious. Well, I'm glad we have a worthwhile purpose. <laughs> yes. We did mention earlier, obviously, he's probably best known life in this episode. I'm not expendable, I'm not stupid, and I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) It is a classic. Uh, Then there's his response. When Kelly says about Villa, he'll be sleeping for about half an hour. That will be nice. Yes. One other one I did pull out. It's right at the end of the episode where Blake wants to be teleported down into the palace. And Blake's sort of standing over him. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, have you got the coordinates yet? It takes time. There may not be time. Then stop distracting me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's some good interplay there. So that brings us to our Player of the Week. Mm. My episode, Richard, so you get to go first. Well. Who is your Player of the Week? It would be very easy probably just to go Avon because, look, he gets the most to do out of the regulars. And it would also perhaps be easy to pick William Squire because he would have been, I think, a very good get for them. And, look, I really enjoyed his work in Callan. But I actually gave it to Darian Angardi as Roe. Snap. (laughs) Because you could say in some ways it's a cliched part, but I thought he did actually bring something quite good to that role. Yeah, I actually thought the same thing. I considered Avon, I considered William Squire, but he does bring something to this role. And whilst he's not the most brilliant actor, he does take us from that insecure authority Mm. through to that nervousness, through to that confidence. And there are very real changes. He does, in 50 minutes, go through a proper character arc. Mm. And he portrays that well. Had that been portrayed poorly, this would have completely fallen apart. Indeed. And to the extent that Horizon works, and look, it does mostly work, mm. to the extent that Horizon works, I think it is actually down to him carrying it through. Because we did say at times, look, he's got some quite clunky dialogue. Mm. And look, you probably do get a bit sick of him just constantly being indecisive. But I thought he plays it really well. Yeah, and look, William Squire was definitely very good. And, and yes, he worthy. certainly was an honourable mention. Yeah, absolutely. But a rare example of us coming up with the same, yes, the same answer. So there you go. So look, I come back to my original point. There's a lot of stuff I like in here. I like... Roe as a character. Mm. I like this idea of looking at the Federation through the lens of colonialism. Yep. I like Avon actually looking at actually running out. And, and I think it gives the character more credibility that he's actually had a proper look at it. It's not just always, Avon might run out. Nah, Avon might run out. Like this time it's like, he got really close. Yes, and this time he actually has to deal with what abandoning the crew really involves and what might actually mean. Yeah, so there's a lot to like in this script. There's a lot to like in the story. I enjoy this episode. Mm. It just doesn't quite hang together as well as I would have liked. Yeah, good, but not great. Yeah, I agree. So we'll be back next episode with Pressure Point, Mm. which means I get to say, for the first time this series, set a course for Earth. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7.
thought we were tired before. I'll tell you this, though. It beats work 